Welcome to Beyond Infinity, Piers Cunningham with you today. I'm joined by Simon Young, who is the head of content at Melbourne-based virtual reality company Lithodomus VR. Just to talk a little bit about your ancient world website. Now, this is, you mentioned it's kind of the consumer website. And one of the great things that it does is it allows you to look at an itinerary, say it's um, ancient Rome that you, you're, you're interested in. You can look at an itinerary, see, what, see where you're going to go, and then buy a tour. Uh, and, uh, and, and so this is taking uh, things that you've done, uh, different sites that you've, you've done the, the VR experience for and making that kind of packaging it up and making it very accessible. So I assume this is also available through your app or is it a different experience to what your app offers? Yes, it's not. It's, it, it, yes, it is a different experience to the app. And in fact, um, we are moving away from apps. Are you? Um, hmm. Yes, apps are, apps are yesterday's news. Right. Um, and and the, web is, the web is the future. So, strangely... We get we we kind of have had a few discussions internally, and we kind of think that maybe maybe the web has a future. <laughs> well, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and apps are well. The issue with an app is um, uh, the app stores. Quite frankly, uh, I think there was a um, a big standoff between um, I'm not sure which which company, but and and the publishers of Fortnite. Yeah. Yeah, I won't speculate on which company it was, but I think it was between. Well, it was App Store and and Fortnite. Yeah, and Fortnite yeah. not wanting to to pay the thirty percent commission. That that's right. So that's at the heart of it. The the, mono, the monopoly of these giants, mm. um, their terms and conditions, the ability for them to arbitrarily reject or accept uh, changes, mm. the um, exorbitant commission that they charge for for downloads, whereas. If it's a, a web-based um, uh, application or platform, there's uh, there's no commission at all on any any transaction apart from the um, uh, the payment collection fee from PayPal or credit card or whatever whatever that might be, which is tiny compared to the thirty yeah. percent. And um, there's a whole heap of amazing development going into web browsers, both on desktops, on tablets, and on smartphones that that the pace of development of these uh, browsers is going to outstrip the um, or out, out, you know, overtake um, apps' ability to, to keep up mm. in the long term. So we're switching um, to to this web our web-based platform. Um, and also, of course, it's very easy to, to, to make updates and to push the update. There's no approval process. There's no review. And it's also completely cross-platform. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Being so you, web. Yeah. yeah. So you're not having to design things in different languages for different platforms. It's just one one thing for for all. Exactly, exactly. And then once web VR kicks, and, and it's already there, by the way. We're not we're, theoretically we could launch the um, uh, headset version of Ancient World, and that's on our roadmap. It's just a question of time. Mm. But we're probably a few months away from doing that because the technology is already there. So how will it work, web VR through a headset? You'll go to a website on your desktop, let's say, or or on your phone. Yeah. Well, the phone's slightly different because the phone could be part of the actual visualization, depending on what sort of headset you're using, because you can 
You can plug your phone into the headset. Are you talking about that? Or I mean, does it, does it include that? Or is it only a dedicated headset that's going to allow you to experience web VR? Well, interestingly, uh, the, the market leader, I think, at the moment for VR headsets is the Oculus Quest 2. And this is a, what we call an all-in-one. So there's no phone involved at all. It's a single device. It's also dropped dramatically in price. I think it's at 299 US. Right. Um, and it's broom scale. So before you might remember back in the day, if you wanted, to, wanted a room scale uh, experience, you'd have to set up sensors around the room so that they could ch- track your movement where you, went, where you were in the room. That's with the Oculus Quest 2, that's gone. It's, it's fully room, uh, free roam with no sensors. With no sensors? With no sensors, that's right. How does that work? Uh, they have at the front of the device a couple of uh, lenses, um, which, are, which are like depth, depth sensors. And I imagine they're, they're um, like the t- same types of um, sensors that you see on, uh, on, a, um, on, an, on an iPhone for AR. So okay. it protects the space around you. So li- LiDAR. Lighter, yep. And uh, you draw up, you draw your uh, your safe space to play, and hey presto! And it's the the frame rate and the resolution is incredible. That came out a few months ago. Really, that makes mobile VR and uh, Google Cardboard, I think, obsolete. Right. In fact, Google Cardboard has discontinued. Google is no longer developing or supporting apps for Google Cardboard. Okay, yeah. So there's a recognition that that, that, that the prices have come down sufficiently for you not needing to co-opt your phone into your VR goggles. Precisely, precisely. And then then the next big thing that they were hinting at in the the, uh, Oculus conference is the smart glasses. So uh, Facebook, um, uh, there's a a really cool video that... that, um, listeners might want to check out about the future of smart glasses They're partnering with Ray-Ban right. uh, to create, to create a, uh, uh, an augmented, augmented reality um, uh, smart glasses that look like Ray-Ban, Ray-Ban sun, sunnies. Right, right. Well, that, at least they're good sunglasses. Exactly. Yeah. At least they won't look geeky. Yeah. That's very interesting, isn't it? If you didn't know, the the uh, the, the fact is that uh, Oculus is owned by Facebook. So really, some amazing developments in the whole space. I love your, you know, just the ability to sort of look at a web page and and see, you know, itinerary, buy a tour to ancient Rome, uh, Rome or, or Jerusalem or Delphi or or Lisbon, uh, and and just some of the videos that you've got, the sort of demonstration or sort of showcase videos that you've got on your websites, uh, both ancientworld.co and and um, and the Lithodomus website, really are just spectacular, and the detail is amazing. Something I, I noticed, uh, and I imagine with people who are who are so obsessed with detail, like you guys, that the details are correct. So that the, the multicolored columns you see in in ancient Rome and and Corinth, that's based on what was actually the case. So they used different coloured marbles to to make up the the outside of these columns, and they've weathered away over time. So we don't we don't see that now, but but that's the way they did look. That's that, that's right. In fact, um, uh, I think it was like October last year. I had the opportunity to to demonstrate the Rome content to the um, to the director of the um, Roman Forum. Yep. 
in Rome, and um, he gave his nod of approval and said it was they were among the best reconstructions he'd ever seen. Yeah, look, I'd really recommend them to listeners. It, it, it is just incredible to see, uh, and it really makes you aware of you know just how sophisticated a civilization it was. You know, this is not something that that sort of pales compared with the modern world that we live in. This is a world that was, in some ways, more beautiful, certainly less certainly less polluted, didn't yes. have overhead cables everywhere and didn't have big, ugly cell towers. It, it really was a, a pretty impressive um, civilization that the Romans had, and it could yet prove to be one that had greater longevity than, than our own. Well, um, what, what we're aiming to do is to enable um, us all to take a stroll down those streets how they were and, and check them out. Um, well, you can now, actually, if you visit ancientworld.co. Yeah. I was going to also say that one really big uh, change um, from what we were doing in the past to, to ancient, ancientworld.co is that we've found, we're, we're pitching, well, we have this idea that the, the reconstructions are amazing, they look wonderful, but, but without a story without someone telling you what they are and explaining their significance and, and the civilization behind, behind them, it, it can be hard for, to, to, to understand the significance. Yep. So for each of the tours on Ancient World, we've enlisted local tour guides right. to provide an audio narrative to each of the viewpoints. Yep. So, for example, in Rome, you'll have a, there's Alessia, <clears throat> who's a, a, a professional tour guide, in Rome, and she takes you through actually through Rome, Ostia, and Pompeii, as if you were going on a guided tour through yeah. these ancient places. Yeah, yeah, that's that's such a good idea. I notice you've also got old Hobart Town, so bringing it back home to Australia, yes, the, the uh, okay. Salamanca Wharf area of Hobart, and it, I mean, I'm not actually seeing the detail; I'm just looking at the the outside, the sort of front page of it. But uh, it, it does look beautiful, and and again, it's a it's a beautiful. Well, it's a nice thing to see that Australia's included in this, given our, our fairly you know, young history. That's great to see. Uh, have you got any plans, just out of interest, have you got any plans to do Angkor Wat? It's come up a lot. The issue we have at the moment is that we have um, over 500 reconstructions of the ancient world already. What, what our next challenge is to, to bring all these together into these multimedia experiences on ancient world to find a guide to narrate them. So that's going to take a little while. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, then, and then after that, we'll, we'll look at um, uh, doing more content. But we are, we are certainly looking at creating experiences uh, in Asia, mm. in, including Cam- Cambodia, mm. and also in the, in the United States and South America. Fantastic. Yeah, I can I can imagine. So you've you've almost got too much stuff to you kind of got to clear clear your current stockpile before moving into new stuff by the sound of things. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 with Ancient World this is our you know I, I feel it's a really major step towards creating something that's engaging and relatable to to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Talking with Simon Young of Lithodomus VR, he's the head of content. Simon, just briefly, I know you've actually got a bit of an explanation on on your Lithodomus website, but the, the sort of mm. process of what you do to, let's say, Hobart, how did you yeah. produce it? What's involved in putting that together, you know, from scratch? I hope you don't mind. I'm going to get a little bit philosophical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but... I kind of take a um, a both a quantum physics 
and a relativistic uh, approach. So I'll explain, I'll explain why. Mm-hmm. So the relativistic approach is, is that whole idea that the world makes sense from where you are. So the very, very first step in any viewpoint is to choose a time, a, spe- a specific time in history, and a place. So the, the time is, is expressed in date. The, the place is expressed in GPS coordinates. Yep. So once we've anchored ourselves, ourselves or the viewer, uh, the observer, within this time and place, we can start collapsing the universe around them. And this is, this is uh, the whole kind of quantum physics concept that um, the universe only exists if, it, if it's observed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's really what drives the principle. So, so let's take um, Hobart, for example. Mm. Let's say that we uh, have decided that we're going to be on the causeway. Now, the causeway was a, an artificial bridge that linked uh, Hunter Island to the mainland. Now it's the marina, so you don't see it, it just, it's just concreted over. But before there was a, was a small island and a causeway that bullet trains used to, to, to transport goods up and down. So say we're on the causeway, so then what we do is um, we uh, go up into space and we gather digital elevation models uh, that are on open data sets collected by satellites. Then we, uh, let's say we, we attach the mesh of the landscape to maybe 20 square kilometres around this one point that we've chosen. So we have the landscape. Right. Then what, what we do is we go through historical records um, plans of Hobart of the time, elevations of buildings, paintings, etc. Then we scan them all um, into JPEGs or PNGs. Then we scale them to a real-world scale, and then we place them in the digital model in reference to where this, this, this observer is standing. Then after that, we do a really rough block out of the main elements around the observer using cubes and cylinders and really basic geometry to represent buildings and, and, and other structures. Mm-hmm. And then we do a very quick virtual reality render. And then we, uh, we jump into the model by putting on a headset. And this is the first time that we, we stand within the virtual reality environment in draft. Yep. Now, there's something weird that happens when you go from the screen of your computer to standing in the model. It's almost as if you're, and I think we mentioned this last time, it's almost as if you're in this, this dreaming state. Um, you're seeing objects. You, you're in this land that has been created that's not real, and, and this is... Um, what uh, a Korean uh, philosopher Kim coined as uh, res digitalis. It's a state of being awake, but feeling like you're dreaming. Mm. And and some, something odd, odd odd happens there. You you start to question everything around you. You go, okay, well, what was behind that? Oh, okay, no, I can't see behind that. I can see down this little gap between these two buildings. I should be able to see what's there, what was in the ground. Oh, wow, this is really close. This will be important. You start making these observations that you can't make 
if you're just looking at it from a computer screen. So then once you come out of this state, you're kind of driven, we are driven to, to find the answers to the questions that derive from the observations you made in that very first draft view. Mm. Then we do a secondary round of research. We collect all the all the missing information to answer all these questions, and then we start building up the textures, the models, um, the detail. And we and coming back to the quantum physics idea, what's really really close to us, say within one meter, we look at the ground, and we make that as detailed as possible, an extremely high level of detail, flowers, rocks, etc. And if, if there's a building or something very close to us. We take a lot of care to create the textures of the, of the wood and the, and the artifacts so that they look real. Mm. And then as we start moving away from our point of reference, the level of detail starts to drop because it's, you can't distinguish it anyway from where you are mm-hmm. until you get right to, let's say, the temple on the hill five kilometres away. Perhaps that's just a, a cube with a bit of um, texture and a triangle on top. But because everything really close to you looks real, the brain kind of goes through this uh, acceptance or suspension of disbelief. The the viewer will look at the dandelion or the flower on the ground and say, well, that is so real. Therefore, that temple on on the hill over there must be as real as this. So they accept the entire scene as highly detailed. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, so there's kind mental, of a mental trick. Yeah, yeah. There's. I was going to say that there's a there's a sort of psychological side to what you're doing. You kind of got to have some awareness of how the brain is processing visual information to to mm. kind of play into that with the VR experience. So, so presumably, when you went to Hobart, you've taken some very very high res cameras that you've 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 kind of grabbed all this information and then you're drawing on that as required as you go through those levels of filling in the detail map it out then as you said you put your headset on and work out what intuitively you need to fill in is sort of your brain is is wanting to have this detail filled in so that's what you concentrate on and and that's drawing on detailed images that you've taken when you've gone and sort of done a big data grab using cameras i assume uh, actually, we don't. Uh, I start way way back when I started. I did insist on taking heaps of high res photographs and bringing them back. Then I realised um, fairly early on that the, the classic image that we have of archaeologists is is they're, they're in, a, in in a trench um, on their hands and knees with a brush uh, uncovering um, artifacts. But <clears throat> what perhaps not not everybody realises is that they're also they also have their a ruler and a piece of paper and a pencil, and they are carefully drawing and measuring absolutely everything that they come across. Mm-hmm. So this um, line drawing or plan or record keeping of archaeologists actually serves us much better than than photographs. Right. Um, and the, and the reason is that they're they're clean lines. Um, they're to scale. Their, their flat or their elevation. Um, the photographs, um, you know, if they're not perfectly in focus or if they're at a strange angle, you're always guessing the height of a building or or its orientation or what it, whatever it might be. So um, archaeologists have, in many cases, done all that hard work of measuring and um, and, and publishing uh, clean clean plans of, of sites anyway. Right. So that photographs... 
might might be a reference of okay, this is the type of material the building had, perhaps. Yeah. Or this was the general appearance. Yeah. If you want to add some grime in it, but as a as a kind of as a as a base for the model, we very very rarely use them. Yeah. Okay. And I, I was thinking more about how you'd you know finish surfaces and stuff because that's that, yes, that that's incredible right. detail. Absolutely. But then I guess also your you can base it on what it looks like now, but and in Hobart, the, the central buildings, a lot of them are pretty well preserved. There hasn't been a lot of pollution to dirty them. But in, in, uh, in imagine in a lot of your sites, you've got to kind of take away the, the grime of 2,000 years or at least hundreds of years to get that finished surface detail anyway. Exactly. And there are two schools of thought. There's the, uh, the purest archaeologists who will say that... Um, uh, an archaeological reconstruction should be completely clean. It shouldn't have any people in it. It should focus on the archaeology and the form of the building in its in its pristine state, because that's all we know for sure. We can't know what the grime was like. We can't know what kind of people were there. Yeah. So best to leave them out. Yeah. And then there's the other school of thought that says, well, this is sterile and um, it wouldn't have looked like this and it would have been dirty and there would have been people around. This is actually detracting from the experience of looking at the 3D reconstruction. Mm. I want to see people. Mm. And and in that case, yes, people and, and grime uh, um, play a part. I'm, I'm, I've landed on the people on the people and grime side of the argument for yeah. ancientworld.co. Yeah. And the reason, the reason is that um, it always depends on what story you're trying to tell. If you're trying to tell the story of architecture, and architectural history and and building forms, then absolutely the pristine, peopleless, grimeless model is perfect. But if you're trying to tell the social history and what what type of people live there and what kind of, kind of activities took place there, then absolutely the grime and the people um, uh, layer is essential. Yeah, and it does add a lot of richness to to include the human element, not just to look purely at sort of architecture and the layout of a you know the town planning to actually to include people. And I notice you do in a lot of your uh, ancient world stuff. You know the Colosseum, you include crowds and you fill the stands with people, and it it, it does really add to that uh, that sense that you're going back in time, or that it just gives it that that realism. Exactly, and 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 if if we need to, we can just go uh, right click, select, delete people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the beauty of VR. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm talking with uh, Simon Young, head of content at Lithodomus VR, a Melbourne company that's doing such, such amazing work in uh, bringing the ancient world to life and showing you how things were, the way people lived. I mean, it is beautiful to see the architecture, and and you know the architecture is stunning, but also to just to get a sense of how people lived and how in some ways how little the world has changed and that idea that you know we're not necessarily the absolute pinnacle in some ways and 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 the influence of of um, classical architecture today right up till now is 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 very clear when you when you see the way it was uh through through vr uh, or through uh, you know the visualizations that Lithodomus VR creates. So Simon, it's it's been great to talk to you. I know you've touched on the esteemed gentleman in in Korea, Juhan Kim, and his article is the yeah. phenomenology of digital being. So this is that idea that there's this dream state, and my take on it was that it's 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 like when you're dreaming and 
it's it, your eyes are closed, but you're it's you're not even sure whether your eyes are open or not. The sense of realism and three dimensional clear space around you, and and sometimes in certain dream states or you know coming in and out, maybe early in the morning when you're sort of just waking up, you're actually not sure whether your eyes are open or not, and it can be a surprise. Oh, my eyes are actually closed, even though it was like I was looking through a window. It was that clear. And, and this, to me, is one of the really great things that v- virtual reality can do. I mean, do you think we're at that state yet? Is it going to be that immersive and that true? Because if, if so, then, I mean, what's to stop you guys recreating a dream and, and people not being even sure of whether it's, it's real or not? I have to say that when I see um, people using virtual reality and view- viewing our content and watching their faces and hearing what they say, they're, they're kind of looking around. It's almost like they're dreaming. They're looking up and down, and they're saying things like "ah" and go, "oh ah," and, and kind of moving around as if as if it's a, a you know a cat or a dog in front of the the fire twitching and <laughs> dreaming. Mm. It's chasing a rabbit. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> very, it's a, it seems very similar. And I hate to, I hate to bring up um, ancient philosophy, but <laughs> there was a um, a, a famous uh, philosopher in, in central Turkey, or not so famous, called uh, Diogenes of Oinoanda, not to be confused with the the other Diogenes with Alexander the Great. But he wrote this treatise that that said that dreams are real because they produce a physical effect. So if you are dreaming and your heart starts racing and you imagine you've got pain or you imagine this or that, what real difference is there between between um, the, the physical reactions that are being produced by the dream and the physical or emotional reactions that are being that are produced by real life events? And and I think I think that's relevant because within virtual reality, people do experience emotional and physical physical reactions. If you're, if you're walking, there's a very famous um, Mount Everest VR experience where you, you need to walk over one of those bridges and people get afraid about falling off and feel giddy and, and, and nervous about stepping onto this, uh, onto this ledge. So I think we're, we're pretty much almost there in the sense of, of replicating the emotional response to physical stimuli in mm. virtual reality. Mm. Yeah, I've seen the similar thing. I think when people get trained to walk, you know, tight ropes between, you know, skyscrapers, they'll yes. they'll put the, the headset on to for them to get over that that feeling of vertigo as they walk along this very very narrow, ten centimeter wide path, which is taking them from point A to point B, and and the sense of vertigo, and and I mean it would be a great tool for that sort of thing to get just to get your brain and your consciousness, your psychology used to, to what you're going to experience in the real world. So I mean that that in itself would be a, a, another branch of of the VR experiences would be preparing people for hazardous experiences or or experiences that are gonna that are going to incite a fear response. One of, the, one of the most interesting experiments that I saw with VR was at Tel, in Tel Aviv, at the Tel Aviv University, a, a group of researchers put together uh, two 360 videos. The first one was, was from the perspective of a young Israeli soldier guarding a, ch- a checkpoint mm-hmm. and a man and a woman, a Palestinian man and woman approaching the checkpoint and the woman holding uh, something in front of her chest and and looking looking very uneasy and being guided by the man towards the checkpoint and the, and the Israeli soldiers are going oh you know, stop stop right now 
between them are saying that they think it's a bomb and and the Palestinians getting very upset. And then the same video was played again from the Palestinian perspective where we realised that the woman is pregnant and she's trying to get to a hospital because she's in labour. Their perspective is these very hostile Israeli soldiers brandishing their weapons and yelling at them and and w- w- whereas all they needed to do was to, to get to a hospital. Yeah. So what they... they, they they played this to a uh, hundred students at the university and then gave them a, a questionnaire at the end or at the beginning sorry and at the end to, to to see whether this video could change political ideology <laughs> in terms of sympathy towards the uh, palestinians yeah and it did good <laughs> yeah isn't that political great? Political uses as well. Yes, yeah, and, and just training people to literally to see the same situation from different perspectives. Exactly, exactly, exactly. There's one on the Oculus Quest at the moment, actually, that's about bullying for kids, and it's a multi-perspective view on, on a kid working in the library and pe- people talking about him and, and, and from all the different perspectives to, to, to create empathy. Yeah. Yeah. For, for the victim. Yeah. Well, uh, look, um, thank you, Simon Young, the head of content at uh, Lithodomus VR. It's it's such a fascinating conversation that we're having. And I mean, I could keep on talking forever, but uh, I should let you get on with your day. It really is great to speak with you, Simon. I appreciate your time and um, and, and really wish you, wish you guys well with what you're doing, because I think it's just such a just such a great thing it must be really exciting for you to be to see the effect on people to 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 see the the joy and and the the awe that that your work inspires must be a great thing it never never gets boring yeah indeed i I bet i'd suggest if you want to check out his website go to lithodomusvr.com or there's the other website which is uh ancient dash world.co that's the one that allows you to literally uh check out an itinerary and buy a tour for jerusalem uh, corinth uh, lisbon the ancient world and also old hobart town if you want to bring it back home to australia so um some great work let's keep in touch definitely All thanks right. you're listening to beyond infinity, beyond infinity. Beyond Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au.